Thank you, Jenny. Chuck Swindoll writes this. One of my most unforgettable moments happened when I was just about 10 years old. My dad had served his country well in armaments factories throughout the war, and yet he worked too long. He worked too hard, and as a result, he suffered a terrible physical breakdown that was followed up by an emotional breakdown that even the doctors could not understand. I was convinced in my heart my dad was going to die. I knew it. He may have had such thoughts too because one night my dad called me into his room for a somber father-son talk. I remember he leaning hard against his bed. I was listening carefully to a voice that was, was hardly more than a whisper. I thought I was hearing him for the very last time as he gave me counsel on life, how I should live, how I should conduct myself as his son. The counsel, it wasn't long and then I left and I went across to my own room that I shared with my brother and I just bawled because I was convinced I was never going to see my dad alive again. The scene still haunts me, he writes. Even though my dad actually recovered and lived, I still remember the night that he talked to me. Something very significant is wrapped up in our final words. Consider that night in Jerusalem. When the Lord Jesus gathered with his disciples what we call the Last Supper, that just less than 12 hours later, he was nailed to a cross. A few hours later, Jesus was dead. And Jesus understood the significance of those moments as he called us into his room in a barely a whisper on his way to his death to give us exactly what we would need to carry us through the rest of our days. Those last words of Jesus to his followers was a charge to gather together regularly, consistently, continually for all time, to gather around a table, to break bread and to drink wine together as his family, to commune together as a church with his body and blood set forth sacramentally before us. Friends, what does the Lord's Supper give us if this was the final word of Jesus to his church? What's it for? We're going to look at that. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. We're going to look at chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. And then in chapter 11, we're going to read verses 23 to 32. This is St. Paul, a number of years later, reflecting back on what Jesus gave his church that night. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14, he writes, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. In chapter 11, skipping ahead to verse 23, he continues, For I received from the Lord, that is Jesus, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, literally do this unto my remembrance. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't come under judgment. When we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we'll not be condemned with the world. Friends, what does the Lord's Supper give us? The Lord's Supper gives us Jesus. That's what he says here, right? Chapter 10, verse 16, he he calls the sacrament of the Lord's Supper a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. 10.16, to participate in something is to open yourself up to its spiritual influence. He actually contrasts this with going to a pagan temple where a demon is worshipped and and participating in the worship there. He says, don't do that, because if you go to a pagan temple where a demon is worshipped, even though demons are nothing, if you open up your life to them, that worship of a demon will begin to open up your heart to their influence, and they're going to start affecting you, and it's going to shape you. And in the same way, He says, when you come to the Lord's table in faith, when you take of that cup, when you eat of that bread, you are in the same way opening yourself up to the spiritual presence and influence of the Lord Jesus. And that's because Jesus is actually there in the meal. He says it's a a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. That means that Jesus is is there in the meal. It's, It's not... Yes, it's a symbol, but it's more than that. It's not an empty symbol. John Calvin, the Swiss reformer, commented that that if you say that it's just barely symbolic, but Jesus is not in it, then it's what he called a lying symbol. Because the Bible says it's a participation in the body of Christ. It's a participation in the blood of Christ. There are all sorts of of ways that that Christians have tried to figure out what that means throughout the centuries. There's the the current Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation that says that the, the, the bread and the wine are actually transformed into human flesh and human blood. And you participate in the flesh and blood of Jesus quite, quite corporeally in that way. There's, there's the Lutheran doctrine that, that says that, no, there's still bread and there's still wine, but, but sacramentally Christ becomes present in, with, and under the elements so that you're actually communing with Christ. There is... 
the kind of dominant reformed view uh, that you know I would tend toward by default uh, because I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Um, and that reformed view is is that Jesus corporeally is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And, and yet it is a participation with Christ when we take this meal by faith. He is in the meal uh, more than the elements because Christ in his divine nature is able to be in multiple places at multiple times at the same time. And so Christ, when you receive this by faith, is, is, is supernaturally present with respect to his divine nature. And because the divine and the human are, are still together in the incarnated Jesus now at the right hand of the Father, you are therefore participating spiritually through the divine nature with the human flesh and blood of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And then there's that view that just says, the Bible says Jesus is in it, and that's a mystery. And maybe we aren't meant to know exactly how that happens. Uh, Various ways, but the, the point is that Jesus is here in some way, physically, spiritually, supernaturally, and hence the warning in the part of chapter 11 that we just read where Paul warns that because Christ is present, you must not take this as a trifle. You shouldn't play games with God. He says you have to come examining yourself and making sure that you discern the body of the Lord, he says. What does that mean? Well, you know, earlier on he was, he was talking about how some of the Christians, he says it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You know, don't you have homes to eat in? If this were just a normal meal, go home and eat. This is something holy. And there were some Christians who were very well off who would have, they'd bring their loaves, they'd bring their wine, they'd be feasting while a poor Christian, a poor follower of Jesus would have no bread and no wine and would be sitting in the corner alone and hungry. And then he warns them, because of this, some of you are sick and others have fallen asleep. He talks about the Lord's discipline, which is there to protect your soul so that though you might lose your body, you will not lose your soul in the coming age. A warning, because Jesus is present. Does it mean discerning the Lord's body, understanding that this is a holy thing, a supernatural meal, that the Lord is here? Or does it mean that other use of the body of Christ that Paul often uses, discerning the body of the Lord, meaning discerning the church? taking care of your fellow brother in Christ, taking care of your sister in Christ, making sure that the poor are elevated within the church to the same position as the rich, making sure everybody takes together, that nobody's left out, that the church is functioning as the body of Christ, the body of the Lord. I don't know. I suspect this is one of many double entendres in, 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 in Paul's writings, many double meanings that mean maybe both things. Understanding the Lord is in this meal. This is a holy thing. Don't take Take it lightly and understanding that we take it together as the family of God, as the body of the Lord, taking the body of the Lord. I remember a seminary professor sharing how real this passage came, uh, became in the life of a church that he had served in. Within that congregation, there was an elderly woman who uh, had been a very divisive figure in the life of the church. She was a malicious gossiper. 
uh, tearing down elders, tearing down Christians, criticizing people left and right, always pulling people aside to, to, to confess other people's sins instead of her own. And, and they were concerned about it. A lot of people had sat down and talked with her and said, you know, you're destroying people's reputation. You're making all of us think horrible thoughts about our brothers and sisters in Jesus. You're ripping us apart. You can't keep doing this. Look at the effect that your words are having when you say these things about this man, about this woman, about that child, the way you're crushing them and destroying them and excluding them. And, and they kept coming to her and, and, and she would not, she was not able to see her own sin. All she had to do was she was justifying herself, minimizing herself, saying, hey, I'm just one, I call a spade a spade. I say it like it is. I wouldn't say it if it weren't happening. Where there's smoke, there's fire. The elders started thinking maybe we're going to have to have some kind of formal church disciplinary thing here. We keep talking to her. They, you know, like most churches, they didn't really want to do that. It's the last thing you want to do. I, I could certainly say that from my experience. And so they wondered, what are we going to do about this? A couple of them pulled her aside and said, listen, we don't think you should be taking communion until, until you start to recognize the impact your words are having on your brothers and sisters in Jesus, until you start to have some empathy for the, for the victims that you're leaving behind. We, we don't think you should be doing this until you're ready to ask forgiveness from them. One Sunday morning, they had communion. Everybody got up. She got up with everybody else. She tilted her head back defiantly and walked up to the Lord's Supper and about three feet in front of the table. She collapsed dead. She had had a a massive heart attack, and she was dead before she hit the floor. And what the professor told me was chilling, because he said, and no one said a word. They didn't have to. Jesus had come to church, and he loves his bride, and he will protect his bride at whatever cost. The Lord's Supper is a holy thing because the Lord Jesus, the Lord of earth and heaven, who rules the nations with a rod of iron, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead, Jesus who died for his bride, is present in this meal. For this reason, Paul writes, some of you are sick. Others have fallen asleep. He requires that we come with love for his church his body, his bride, and that we come recognizing his presence in this sacrament. You can't do that, friends, unless you have Jesus, unless you know he's got your back, that he's forgiven your sins. It's the only thing that can enable you to humble yourself to say, no, I have hurt other people. I do need to seek their forgiveness. I do need to come acknowledging the body of the Lord. So what does it do? What is this sacrament of the Lord's Supper? What does it do? I don't like the question. The question is a very American question. Americans are utilitarian. We ask, what's it for? What's, it, what's the advantage? What's it going to do for me? How will it help my life? The biblical question is not, what's it do? The biblical question is, what is it? What is the Lord's Supper? And friends, if the Lord's Supper is Jesus Christ present supernaturally among his people to bless you, 
and to give you grace. If it's the Lord Jesus, that is enough. Jesus, in whom all things consist. Jesus, who the Bible says is the author of life. Jesus, who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one through whom everything that has been made was made. He's the author of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the King of kings, the Prince of peace, the resurrection and the life, the eternal logos of God, the Word of God incarnate, the Son of God and everlasting Lord. He is present in his power and in his compassion, and that is enough. It's not a question of what it does. It's a question of what is it, and what is it? It is Jesus for his bride. What is it? It's Jesus also something else that goes with that. It's also a wake-up call. When Jesus said to do this unto my remembrance in the Greek, that could mean one of two things. Uh, First of all, he may be emphasizing our remembrance. That's how most English language translations interpret it. Do this in remembrance of me. And if that's so, then what Jesus is saying, the Holy Christ before whom we are all really quiet right now, what he's saying in this meal is is remember my gospel. Don't lose sight of my gospel. It's a a symbolic reenactment of the death of Jesus. Do this to remember my death, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. As often as you do this, Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's, It's Jesus redirecting us from ourselves to him. There are all sorts of things on which we might base our assurance of salvation. There are all sorts of things we might trust in. And here he's saying, trust in me. Look at my cross. It is finished. There's nothing more for you to do to be reconciled with me, but to come with the empty hands of faith to receive my grace because on the cross I purchased your soul for God. Though your sins were as scarlet, I've made them whiter than snow. Uh, I've made you clean now. And so rejoice. The cross on which All of your sins and all of my sins were transferred to Jesus. And he bore them for you. And he bore the wrath and judgment of God for me and for you. So that if you have Jesus, friends, you will never face the wrath of God. You will never face the judgment of God. Because for you, judgment day has moved from the future to the past. Jesus said, it is finished. You bear your sins no more. It's good news. And Jesus is saying, remember the gospel. Remember my love for sinners like you. The most important thing happening when you take the Lord's Supper by faith may not be what's happening in your head. It might be what God is communicating to you in that very moment as he's communicating the love that sent his son to the cross in your place. God saying, remember the good news. Don't lose sight of the cross. Let the cross be the center of your reality. I remember maybe a a decade or so ago when this church was transitioning toward weekly communion. Um, In the 1960s and 70s, we had quarterly communion four times a year. Uh, and then we had moved to monthly communion, and then we had moved to three times every third week, and and then we were preparing the congregation to go to weekly communion. And I remember as as the pastors and elders, as we were doing that, um, there were a lot of concerns uh, raised that if we went weekly, it would become meaningless. 
Um, and it was certainly valid concerns because people take the Lord's Supper all the time without even a fleeting thought for God. And yet as we understood what the Lord's Supper is, that is the presence of Jesus in his grace and in his love for us, communicating his love, his self-sacrificial love for us, that he died for us, then those concerns started to go away. You know, some of you are parents. As parents, um, would it be more meaningful to your children when you tell them that you love them if you only told your children you love them four times a year? You know, if you were to pick up your children and hug them on the first Sunday in January, April, July, and October, and sit down with them and hug them and say, I'm your dad and I love you, would it be more meaningful in those moments? Well, actually, yes, it would, because you would have deprived them of love, you know, 12 weeks in a row. So, of course, they're going to be thirsty and starve for your affection because you haven't given it to them. If you tell your children you love them every single day, you do it constantly and showing them how much you love them and reminding them how much you love them, is it going to be as meaningful each and every time? No, but the result is that they're going to feel much more loved and much more secure. And if this is Jesus saying week after week, I love you, I died for you, If this is the Father saying, I am wild about you. You are the apple of my eye. I delight in you. I gave up my son to have you because I could not live without you. I'm that committed to you. And friends, if that's what it is, that's the gospel. That's everything. That's what it's all about. That's why we call it a sacrament. A sacrament is an ordinance established by Jesus during his earthly life which communicates his gospel. Baptism, communicating how he washes us of all of our sin. The Lord's Supper, communicating how he died for us so we don't bear our sins anymore. Christ has taken all of the payment and paid that price in full. Jesus saying, don't lose sight of my gospel. That's, that's what worship is about. I mean, you look at the liturgy. You, you, you're here, those of you who are here every week, you've got this liturgy down. But, you know, what does it mean to come to Jesus? come to Jesus to experience the gospel means that you acknowledge that God is the Lord of earth and heaven, that he is your creator, he can do whatever he wants with you, and and that you owe him all worship and praise in your very life. And then to recognize in light of that that you are a sinner, and I see how broken and damaged I am and how much I need grace, and so I confess my sins to God, and he forgives me. And he assures me of that forgiveness and says, you are, you are saved, you are redeemed, you are mine, you are my child, and I will never let go of you. And then because of that, I want to submit my life to the word of God and learn from him. And then I want to commune with him and with his church, with his people, and be sent out in service to him. Friends, I have just described what it looks like to experience a Christian conversion. I have also just, ex- just explained step by step our Sunday morning liturgy. As we begin by worshiping God, then we confess our sins. We receive an assurance of our forgiveness and salvation. And then we go to the word of God and submit and learn from him and then commune with him together as his church at his table and then are sent out to serve him. Every worship service is reenacting the gospel because that's all we have. Jesus is saying, remember the gospel. 
symbolically reenacting the cross. Friends, we all have this neurotic bucket of insecurity. And we walk around and we wonder, does God really love me? Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? What if, what if I'm just faking it? And so we start to turn inward on ourselves to fill up that bucket of insecurity. And so we look at our worship experience and we say, well, am I having deep emotional experiences of God in worship? And, and, and we look at our devotional life and say, am I, am I reading my Bible and praying and serving God? And we look at our relative obedience in some particular area. Am I growing in holiness if I'm being faithful to God? And we look at our church involvement or a sense that we're doing something great with God. And none of these can fill up the bucket of insecurity because it is an infinitely huge, big, dark, bottomless bucket of insecurity. Friends, the only thing that can fill the bucket of insecurity is the blood of Jesus Christ, his broken body, and his promise to save everyone who comes to him with the empty hands of faith. Don't look inward for your assurance of salvation. Once you turn inward, you're going to see how much you don't worship God and how much you don't serve him and how devotionless your devotional life is because it's never going to be enough. Look outward to Christ. That's what this sacrament is telling you week after week after week. Jesus is saying, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my arms outstretched in love for you. That is your assurance. That is your salvation. That is your destiny. You are mine. There's a guy, John Duncan, known as Rabbi Duncan. I think we've got a picture of him if we could get that slide. Rabbi Duncan uh, was born in 1796. He was a theologian and a minister in the Free Church of Scotland. He taught Hebrew and Oriental languages at the New College in Edinburgh. And he was sitting one day at communion in a church in the Scottish Highlands, and he was feeling so personally unworthy that when the elements came round, he felt like he couldn't take them. You can imagine his sense of being a personal failure in so many areas. The shame over his thought life. Bitterness still in his soul over wrongs that had been done to him. A failure to seek God with all of his heart and his word. His own relative prayerlessness. And as he was sitting there feeling absolutely miserable in his sin, he noticed a girl in the congregation whom, when the bread and wine came round, also allowed them to pass by her. And then the girl broke down in tears. Heavy sobs were coming from her as she sensed all of her shame that he also knew so intimately. At that moment, he regained his perspective. And it dawned on him what he had forgotten. And in a carrying whisper that could be heard all the way across the church, he was heard to say, Take it, lassie. Take it. It's meant for sinners. And the, then he himself took part. Friends, look outward to Jesus for your assurance. He's making this objective for our sake. Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Do you say, Jesus, I hear you. I believe you, Jesus. Whatever you say, I believe you, Jesus. You are the Son of God. You are my Savior. Jesus gives you the promise. You have crossed over from death to life and will not be condemned. Not now, not in the future, not ever. The Apostle John says he wrote his first letter of John so that we would know this. 
since these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. He wants you to know it. He wants you to have assurance. He wants you to have the confidence of knowing you have been redeemed fully, finally, and forever, not because of what you've done, but because Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree and you bear them no more. God has loved you. This is about Jesus. He's here. And it's possible when he says, do this unto my remembrance, that he's saying, do this to remember what I did for you. But there's another interesting possibility here, friends. When he says, do this unto my remembrance, he could be evoking the language of God's covenant with Noah, the language of the Old Testament, when God had flooded the earth and then cleared the land and then blessed and called Noah and made a a relationship, a covenant with Noah. He gave a sign. He said, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. And whenever you look at the rainbow, you'll remember my promise to Noah to never destroy the world by flood. Is that what he says? No, he says, and whenever I look at the rainbow, I will remember my covenant with Noah and my promise to never flood the earth again. What if in saying, do this unto my remembrance, Jesus is saying, when I see you, my family, coming together and breaking bread and drinking of this cup, I will look down from heaven and remember my covenant with you and remember my promise to save you fully and finally and forever. It's the same thing when you look at the Passover in the Old Testament. It was at the Passover that Jesus was instituting the sacrament when, when Moses was told to... to that every family has to slay and sacrifice a lamb and then take the blood of that lamb and put them on the doorposts over top of their doors and the avenging angel would go out to destroy the firstborn from every Egyptian family. Yet when he would see the Jewish home and he would see the blood, the shed blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he would remember his covenant. He would remember his promise and he would spare the children in that household. What if Jesus is saying, when, I, when you break of this bread... And when you drink of this cup, I will look down from heaven and I will remember, do this unto my remembrance. I will remember my promise, the shed blood for you. And I will bless you and not curse you. Oh, friends, in giving us the body and blood of Jesus, this meal pointing us to the very humiliation that God the Son experienced on the cross for us, his incarnation when he bore all our guilt so that we could go free, when he then showers us with his blessings and clothes us in his righteousness, we see the self-sacrificial love of God for us in, in full relief. We think of the humiliation that God the Son experienced in becoming human, and taking on human flesh and all of its brokenness. And then the humiliation he experienced when he went to the cross and absorbed the wrath of God fully so that you will never face it when he was crushed and destroyed and died. It's a shameful thing. You can imagine the angelic host, the shame that they would experience in thinking that God the Son would go through such humiliation all for our sake. Nabil Qureshi was a Muslim convert to Jesus who passed away earlier this year. And he spoke about a friend of his, Sahar, who was a resolutely Muslim friend, like he had been, 
uh, and who was attracted to parts of Christianity, but who honestly could not accept the idea of God becoming a human being and dying for us. Uh, The thought of a human body and human blood was just way too much for her. And on one occasion, uh, Sahar honestly asked him, Nabil, how can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of some woman and if he had to use the bathroom like the rest of us? Aren't these things beneath God? And Nabil affirmed her question and asked her one in turn, He said this, he said, Sahar, let's say that you're on your way to a very important ceremony and you're dressed in your finest clothes and you're about to arrive just in time, but then you see your daughter drowning in a pool of mud. What would you do? Would you let her her drown and arrive looking dignified or would you rescue her but arrive at the ceremony covered in blood or covered in mud and And her response was very matter-of-fact. Well, of course I would jump into the mud and save her. I nuanced the question a little more, and Abiel asked her this. He said, well, let's say that there were others with you. Would you send someone else to save her, or would you save her yourself? Well, if she's my daughter, how could I send anyone else? They wouldn't care for her like I would. I would do it myself. I would do it definitely. And Nabil followed up. He said, well, if you, being human, love your daughter so much, that you willingly lay aside your dignity to save her. How much more can we expect God, if he is our loving father, to lay aside his majesty in order to save us? The biblical story of God's shameless love, the love that sent him to the cross, eventually won Sahar's heart. And as Nabil reported, the message of God's selfless love overpowered her, and she could no longer remain a Muslim. She, like I, accepted Jesus as her Savior. And now she, like I, commune with Jesus, who promises eternal life for all who take shelter in him. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you because you are the one who died for us. You are the one who shed your blood. You are the one whose body was broken. And so we consecrate to you now the elements on this table. Lord, we are all sinners, all of us alike. And yet you, Lord Jesus, are a friend of sinners. You didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners like us. You bid us come to you, trusting you with empty hands, bringing only our sin and our faith in you. And we know that you receive us and that you wash us And you give yourself to us and you make us clean. We thank you for your salvation, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Then lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. You don't have to be a member of this church or of this denomination to take part in this meal. If you are a baptized member of any church where Jesus is held forth as Savior, then you are welcome to take part in this meal. You need only come with the empty hands of faith, ready to walk with Jesus, ready to trust him, knowing his blood has been shed and made you clean. If you're not ready to come in that way, just pass by for whatever reason without taking the elements. Don't do anything that's not true to where you actually are. It's not good for you but we hope that you'll be able to come and we look for the day when you will. 
because it was on that night in which he was betrayed that the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this unto my remembrance. In the same way, after the supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, great is the mystery of faith. Christ is God. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Therefore, let us keep the feast.